My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Now some people are lucky enough to make a career out of fish, fisheries and fishing, while others perhaps wish they could, but either don't find the right opportunities or simply have the dream never to follow it up. Today I'm linking up with an angler, a very successful angler it has to be said, in Dr Mike Ladle, who's combined all of those facets by working for the Influential Freshwater Biological Association, while at the same time applying a science-based inquiring approach to various aspects of his practical angling, then sharing the results with the rest of us through numerous magazine articles and books. Knowing something of your background, and keeping an eye on the magazines, Many people, and I must say here myself included, will have you down as a bass angler. To be more precise, a bass lure angler with an eye on conservation issues, and always, through your training and scientific background, coming at it from the scientific perspective. Yet when I suggested this while we were chatting earlier, you said that nothing could be further from the truth. So in angling terms then, what is the real Mike Ladle? The truth is I've been happy to fish for everything since I was a child and uh, I'm just as happy when I'm catching carp or roach or dace as I am when I'm fishing for bass or mullet in the sea. When I was younger I did quite a lot of boat fishing but uh, I normally fish from the shore these days. It's probably a function of being old I expect. Uh, <laughs> I used to do quite a lot of boat fishing. We had a dinghy for many years and used to go out in Swanage Bay fishing uh, for conger and rays and things like that but uh, I suppose for the last 20 or 30 years it's mostly been from the shore I like the exercise, I think it's good for me and uh, I enjoy sort of doing things without a lot of palaver beforehand so it's easy isn't it, I just pick the rod up which is all a set up in my house, I've got several rod and reels, the reels never come off the rods unless I'm actually going abroad or something like that and uh, I like to walk along the shore and sort of fish for what I fancy on the day. It's also easier because you don't have such problems with weather. There's always somewhere you can go when you're fishing from the shore. I still do feature in there, but to what extent? Yeah, I've fished for bass for a long time now. I suppose 50 years since I first started to fish for these things. When I first did it, it was on a trip round the country after I'd done my A-levels and... Uh, we went down to St Ives and when I was there I saw a chap sitting on a, a, a jetty fishing with a dead sand eel and he actually gave me a couple of sand eels, I had a little rod with me and I caught a, a tiny bass, that's the first one I ever saw or caught and of course where I lived in the northeast of England in those days at any rate bass were non-existent so uh, it was not until I moved to the south that I was actually able to fish for these things. And they were sort of a holy grail for me, I suppose, for a long time with bass. I always fancied catching the things. You mentioned earlier catching your first bass on bait, but as I've already suggested, most people have you down as a lure fisherman. To what extent, then, does bait feature on the menu these days? Yeah, certainly done an awful lot of lure fishing for these things. The biggest bass I ever caught, in fact, was on a, was on a plug. But the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th and 7th were almost certainly on live or dead bait. I haven't actually totted them up, but uh, I'm happy fishing with any method. Just as I like to catch any sort of fish, I'm happy fishing any method really. And uh, I enjoy lure fishing, it's exciting, but I'm not so sort of set in my ways that I don't think there's any other way of catching the things. 
and I think it's just as exciting when the line starts running out through my fingers uh, when I'm bait fishing as when I get a hit on a lure when I'm reeling it in. What about other aspects of sea fishing? What else do you regularly do? These days it's mostly bass and mullet. I've done a lot of fishing from the shore for things like conger and uh, ras. Caught a lot of ras on, on those coasts. Nowadays it's mostly uh, people using LRF gear to catch ras, isn't it? There's a sort of uh, change in the way of approaching these things. But to me, it doesn't make any sense because uh, you, all you can do is litter the seabed with a lot, of <laughs> a lot of gear if you do that. But I was catching bass on lures, oh, certainly 30 years ago. We don't have much opportunity for LRF up here in Lancashire, for which reason I've yet to give it a go. So just how effective is it? And might it be the big thing for the future? Oh, it's very effective, and it's good fun, I think. And it's what you, you probably used to do when you were a, a kid, as I did. Uh, you fished for things like blennies and little wrasse and, uh, and gobies and stuff like that. And you can use very fine gear, but of course, when you hook a big fish, you can land it. It's like a lot of coast fishing, isn't it? You know, they use uh, sort of one or two pound lines and sometimes they land big carp but it's not really the way to do it so what you're doing you're actually fishing for small fish so i think it'll never be a sort of replacement for catching decent fish i don't think it's just an enjoyable uh, way of getting something a lot of people like to get plenty of bites i think and then catch something and nothing wrong with that of course but it's certainly not my thing Nah, me neither and I believe you also do quite a bit of freshwater fishing too over the winter months, particularly for the pike when the sea fishing quietens off. Yeah, well, of course you can fish. I've got pals who fish all winter in the sea for, for bass, and they do catch some. But uh, I think everybody has to admit that it slows down an awful lot in the winter, whereas the pike fishing in my local rivers is very good and uh, it can be consistent fun. I'm not mad keen on going out and catching nothing time after time. I mean, if I get a whole series of blanks, I start to think I'm doing something wrong, even though I know I'm not. But, uh, yeah, there are some good pike, good, enjoyable fishing, and I still get the legs stretched a bit. I like to be on the move. I'm one of these people who never still, I'm afraid. That's the Mike Ladle of 2014. But as with the rest of us, what we see today will have its roots in many other aspects of angling and related topics. So talk us through your earlier formative years, right back to the year dot. It is the year dot now, I suppose, <laughs> when you get to my age. Well, I think I was about, I must have been about five. My dad was away in the Navy uh, during the war. When he came back, I must have been five, I suppose. I lived in Leeds in those days, and he took me for a walk up by the local golf course. And uh, as we were passing what they call the golf pond, which is a little sort of dirty pond on the edge of the golf course, I picked up a stick from the ground and on the end of the stick was a bit of thread and a worm and there was a stickleback hanging onto the worm so some youngster had just left this after they'd been there and I put the fact we found a, a jam jar or an old bottle and put the stickleback in it and I uh, I kept that thing for months and months after I remember it got frozen solid that winter in the uh, in the jar and I think I think I was hooked then when that stickleback sort of uh, swung in out the water, you know. So I've been a fisherman ever since. 
and presumably push you on to better things, particularly when you went to university and started to move to other parts of the country. Yeah, yeah, well, I suppose even before that, I had, I, had, I did have people who, who helped me a little bit with fishing. My great-grandfather had obviously been a fisherman. I didn't have anybody to show me how to fish, but he used to tell me tales of fishing, so I remember him, we used to sit in front of his fire. We lived in the back-to-backs in, in Leeds, and uh, you'd sit in front of the fire, and he'd say to me uh, how he looked in a canal, he used to say, and there were a pike a yard long, and you can imagine as a youngster what I felt about something like that. But as I grew up, my fishing hero was Richard Walker. And I picked up, I think I picked up the third issue of Angling Times in Leeds. as I It was in the 1950s, I think, early 50s, as I was walking past the shop and uh, saw this paper in the window. And I bought every issue after that for years. And uh, when I ultimately published a book, I sent... Walker a copy because he'd been my sort of hero I suppose over the years I never spoke to him or anything like that and uh, I have a letter from him which said that uh, if he'd been 10 years younger because he was an old man by then uh, if he'd been 10 years younger he'd have taken up sea fishing and uh, I suppose that's one of my proudest possessions but uh, after that I used to go on holiday with my parents to the Isle of Man uh, when I was little and uh, then I caught things like wrasse and so on. I used to sit on the pier. We used to sit, me and my pal used to sit with our legs around one of the bollards on the stone piers in Castletown in the Isle of Man and fish for wrasse. They used to sit us like that so we wouldn't fall in the sea when we got something. And as I got older, when I was in my teens, holidays were mostly in Northumberland, the Northumberland coast, at sea houses. And there I caught lots of coalfish and flounders. Originally on handlines, used to use handlines a lot, and that taught me a lot about fishing. And there was a, there were some beautiful old limestone quarries there, in sea houses, which had roach and perch eels, and pike in them. We didn't know what was in them, of course, when we started fishing. Tragically, I visited there probably about 15 years ago, and they'd filled them in, <laughs> because uh, a local new housing estate, I think the uh, the parents had said it was dangerous for the kids, but they were fantastic. When I was a kid, I used to fish in these quarries all the time. And then, of course, I got to my late teens and had to uh, go to university. And uh, I did my zoology degree. I suppose, if I think about it, I really did zoology to try and improve the fishing. That was one of the reasons, anyway, why I was interested in biology. I'd always been a sort of born naturalist, I think. But at school I did maths, physics and chemistry. And uh, I think my dad always thought I'd be an accountant like he was, but it definitely wasn't my thing. So uh, I actually, <laughs> I can't tell the story really, I had an interview at Newcastle to do zoology. In those days you could apply to different universities to do different things. And uh, everywhere I'd applied for was maths or chemistry, something like that. But Newcastle, for some reason, applied to do a zoology degree. And uh, when I went, I had a, a sort of separate interview, and the professor said I could go if I did an extra year. So I asked him, the only advice my father ever gave me in my life, I asked him what I should do, you know, when I'd been offered this place. And he said, do what you'll enjoy doing, son. And uh, I did, and I never regretted it. So I did my first degree at Durham. It was a Durham degree, and then 
PhD at Newcastle in zoology, marine biology. In fact, when I was at Newcastle, I started the fishing club. I don't know if it still exists, the university fishing club, Newcastle University. And I did my PhD on the Northumberland coast up near Bamber at Budel Bay. And uh, I dug up most of Budel Bay when I was doing that. And uh, in the sort of gaps between digging, I used to do a bit of fishing. So I'd take a rod down and just lob a bait in the edge for flounders or fish for sea trout in the little river that ran across the bay. And uh, until I moved to Dorset, that was my fishing experience, really. You say he was digging up pretty much all of the beach, but digging for what? Oh, everything. I was I was interested in the distribution of things like mollusks, you know, things like cockles and so on that live in the sand. There's a lot of different species. And amphipods, like things like um, little marine shrimps, you know, hoppers, beach hopper type things, and worms. So what I didn't know about the worms and beach hoppers of Budel Bay, by the time I'd finished three years digging them up, you could have written on a postage stamp. But of course, then you realise you don't know anything at all when you do things like that. <laughs> and after all that, you end up in Dorset. Yeah, it's 1965. Obviously, then there are career paths to be chosen. So were they influenced by fishing and related topics? I took a job with the FBA in 1965 and... My supervisor at university told me then, he said, that's a job for life, Mike, he said, because the FBA. And it just was, because essentially the place I was working shut down a few months after I retired. <laughs> so I was there in that job all my life, down in Dorset. They'd just opened a new laboratory in the 60s near Wareham, on the River Froome, studying chalk streams. And i just married and had a, a small son when we moved to Dorset in 65. Ultimately, I have four sons now and uh, essentially that was it I was with the FBA what they, doing what they call studying the role of detritus in chalk streams in other words looking to see how important things like dead leaves and dead animals were as a food resource for things living in the river when I first moved to Dorset I thought that rivers would be deserts after working in the sea I mean it's a funny thing to think as a biologist but I did I thought there'd be a lot less diversity, a lot less animals and things living there, but it proved not to be the case, of course. When you've got flowing water bringing food to things all the time, you have a lot of stuff lives there. So one of the groups I worked on, one of the animals I worked on, was a filter feeding group of things called blackfly larvae, the little larvae of, uh, of what they call simulid flies. And one of them, it turned out, was a thing called, now called, known as the Blandford fly, that bites people and causes severe bites and I developed control method for that which has been so effective that it's virtually solved the problem. It used to be a severe problem in the 1960s and 70s here in Dorset but it's more or less cured. And then after I'd worked on detritus and invertebrates things like again like worms and insects and so on in the river for many years I took over fish research at the lab as well. I remember the boss saying to me when they were reorganising the lab, would I like to run the fish research? And I said, oh, yeah. I said, is that instead of what I was doing? He said, no, as well as. So that was fairly typical of the way things went. And I did a lot of fish research. We did counting salmon. We'd counted lots of salmon in the river. I think they now must have the best part of 50 years of data on salmon running up the river from probably the best records anywhere in the country, I would think. 
I did a lot of radio tracking of different species of fish, and that was extremely interesting. That was in the last sort of 10 or 15 years I was working there. I was radio tracking fish, and there's still very little known about it, of course. The only way you can find out where a fish is is by tracking it in some way, but they are tiny animals to stick radio to. You'll have seen things like elephants with a, a collar the size of a couple of bean tins on it to transmit, but when you've got something as small as a dace, it's a bit more difficult to uh, attach a tag to them. And uh, I had a number of students who helped me to tag and track pike and dace and so on in the river. But to what extent has that influenced your approach to both your writing and to your fishing? Oh, quite a lot. Uh, I mean, it's uh, quite an impact on what I understand about it. I mean, I'll give you an example, I suppose. When we used to track dace, uh, you can see that's fairly scientific. What you do, you attach a tiny radio tag about the size of a baked bean to one of these, a little bit bigger perhaps. So it has a tiny battery in it and it transmits. And you walk about the riverbank with a sort of television area in your hand and it tells you where the fish are. And within the first few months we were doing it, my student Stuart Clough and I found out several fundamental things. And one was that in the winter, the dace came out of the river and went in the fields. A lot of them were in the fields. So you'd be wading about in the field and you'd come to a tuft of grass, put your hand down, and not only your tag dace, but several others would shoot out from underneath it where they'd been resting. And uh, we found that they only spawned, on the froom anyway, in mill streams, not in the main river. Even though there were apparently loads of suitable places for them to spawn in the main river, they almost exclusively were spawning in mill streams. So, of course, if you messed up the mill stream at the wrong time of year by shutting a, a hatch or something like that, you could wipe out the dace population virtually. And the third and the, perhaps the most interesting thing as an angler was that we found that these radio tag dace were migrating every day anything up to a quarter or a half a mile from one place to another. So at dawn, they would all retreat to open sandy areas uh, where they sat there all day and then at dusk as it got dark again they would swim anything to half to a mile upstream to another spot where they fed and the interesting thing about that was not only did the shoal all move like this but each individual fish in the daytime was sitting effectively over the same pebble on the bottom that it had been over the day before so they knew exactly where they were these fish and we put little luminous barcoded tags on, on some of them so we could go at night with a pair of binoculars and see which fish was where and blow me down at night each fish was in its same individual spot in the river feeding. So if you're an angler uh, you could pack in just before it gets dark and uh, a minute or two later the days could all arrive where you'd been wading <laughs> catching nothing all day. <laughs> so yeah it's it's pretty fundamental, is research and science to my fishing. Yeah, having an inquiry in mind at any level has to bring its benefits to the practical fishing. Equally, there must be spin-offs which you've incorporated successfully yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, time and again I've done things like that. I mean, it's mostly with the things like the bass fishing and so on. I suppose when I lived in Dorset at first, we were feeling our way. You know, I, I used to... Uh, fish for roach and the river's froom and piddle down here and there's a lot of big roach and people are still catching sort of three pounders here in, in Wareham. I've never really been into roach fishing although I, I caught quite a lot when I first arrived here and I say we had a dinghy and used to go out at Swanage Bay fishing for conger and bream. I mean I knew I knew things like 
the fact that the male bream arrived to spawn on certain sort of uh, areas of rock within Swanage Bay before the females. And the males are always much bigger than the females because bream change sex in the course of their lives and the bigger ones inevitably are going to be the males, which are the, uh, the second go of the uh, sex, as it were. And we used to go out early before other people did in the year and catch the bigger bream on these spawning areas. So, yeah, it's been fundamental, I suppose. And then uh, my approach to it has always been to try and apply what I knew about the science of these things to catching the fish that I was after. And uh, I suppose the bass is a good example. We caught the odd one on uh, conger baits and uh, and so on, but... uh, they really were sort of holy grail for us. We always fancied catching lots of bass. Me and my pals who I worked with, I was fortunate to work at a place where there were about seven or eight other keen anglers. I suppose it was with us all being biologists, really, who were, were interested in fishing as well. And uh, developing uh, lure fishing with rapalas was a sort of breakthrough for us. That's probably the reason I've spent so much time lure fishing, because it was the first thing I did, really, to, that was effective way of catching bass. And I don't believe in chuck and chance it fishing, basically. I think you catch many more and bigger fish by knowing where they live and how they behave. I'm not a great one for the usual sort of myth and hearsay and and legend that is often sort of published about these things. I've always tried to uh, approach my writing about fishing with a sort of inquiry in mind. And uh, I did try a book twice before I actually wrote one and uh, each time I binned it because it it was just the same as every other fishing book as far as I was concerned you know you'd write a few chapters and you'd look and you'd think god did I write that then I twigged that I'd actually been connecting science with fishing all my life up to then and that's what I knew about so I wrote about that and uh, it's been a great benefit to my fishing I've, I've caught more fish bigger fish and been more satisfied catching the fish. I think that's the la- that's the real thing, isn't it? It's more satisfying if you catch something when you've actually set out to catch that particular fish. I mean, they always say if you if you read about these things, you all, they always say that, uh, for example, you'll start off by trying to catch lots of different sorts of fish and more fish, and then you try to catch bigger fish. But I suppose I like the satisfaction, even if it's a little fish of catching what I'm after. It's not as pleasurable to catch something by accident as it is to catch it by intention, as far as I'm concerned. You say it's benefited your own personal fishing, but let's also not forget the benefit to others out there who regularly read your stuff. Yeah, I think the same applies, really. Although what all surprises me is how few people take an interest in that sort of thing. I think they don't believe what they read very often, and it's quite difficult, you know, when you write something down, how does somebody reading about fishing distinguish between a well-written piece, which is pure speculation, and one which is actual facts? And uh, I learnt that very early on in life, that you've, (laughs) you've not only got to know what you're talking about, you've got to be convincing when you write about it, I think. But yeah, it definitely helps other people as well. I mean, I've got, there are a lot of people who will say to me, you know, I wouldn't have caught such good fish as I have, Mike, unless you told me what to do, basically. 
but I've never guided people or anything like that. I'm always happy to give them information and, and so on, but I've never, I've never taken people out fishing. It was never my thing. I'd have had to go with people I didn't like then, I think, if I did that. That's what stopped me doing that. <laughs> when we were chatting earlier, you said it's wrong to label you as a bass and mullet specialist. Nevertheless, that's how many people see you. So can we explore that aspect of your fishing in a little more detail now? I suppose bass, as I said, they were a sort of prize for us and very difficult to attain originally. So we used to catch tiddler fish on worm baits originally. I mean, small, what I would call the hardly school bass even. But if you go to Pool Harbour and fish with a ragworm, you'll catch lots and lots of tiny bass. And that was about all we could catch at first. You get the odd good one on conger bait. And... Uh, Lure fishing. I'd been I'd been interested in lure fishing since I was a kid. When I lived in Northumberland, we used to fish in that quarry with small spoons, for example. It was most of the, I suppose that was my first lure fishing, catching perch and pike. And I <laughs> believe it or not, I had a, a I remember having a sort of hypothesis when I was little that that if I used sort of inch and a half spoons, I caught perch, and if I used two inch spoons, I would catch pike. Utter nonsense in retrospect, but that was the way I thought about it. Certainly the bigger lure you the, you tended to catch more of the pike. And I was always interested in catching more and, and bigger fish. And when we'd fished in Dorset for a few years, one of my friends and colleagues, a chap called Trevor Crisp, he's, he's been dead a few years now as Trevor, but he was a very good scientist, an excellent angler. And uh, he had a tiny dinghy, which he used to fish from one of these, one of the old Romany fiberglass dinghies. They were these things used to bend when you stood in them. But him and his wife used to go out fishing in this dinghy. And Trevor, at uh, one time, uh, he used to try to catch mackerel and school bass to eat. He always liked to eat the fish that he caught. And he bought a Rapala plug. Now he was he was like me. He was as mean as hell about buying things. So it must have broken his heart to spend money on this plug. But he'd started trolling this behind his boat and lo and behold he caught one or two bass and uh, that was the start really of my lure fishing for bass i tried these plugs i thought they must have a, some advantages and the first time i ever tried one was i went to to weymouth with a pal of mine and we popped into the local tackle shop and said where's fishing at the moment and he said well they're catching fish from the ferry bridge it's no longer there. It was an old railway bridge that went across the mouth of the fleet, which is a, a lagoon behind the Chettle Beach. And we went, stood on this bridge, and uh, the local anglers were all just packing in. They said, oh, the current's got too strong now. We can't fish here when the current's flowing like that. So I tied one of these rapalas on, dropped it in the sea, and it drifted away, let it drift about 50 yards, brought a bale arm, arm over, and it was wriggling, the Rapala was wriggling in the current, because there was a strong current flowing, and blimey, this bass promptly took it, and then I had another bass after that, and I think that what fired my imagination, I thought, well, blimey, if you can catch these things doing that, you can catch them from the shore, and uh, that was the next, how many years now? The next 40 years I spent trying to develop and use these lures. Originally, we used mostly things like uh, Rapalas, the Finnish balsa wood things, which don't cast very far, but you don't need to. Rebels, which American uh, plastic version of these. Abu Killers, which they, I don't think they make anymore now. And uh, we used to catch some decent fish. 
I think an example of the uh, improvement in the fishing was that instead of spending something like 30 or 40 hours to catch what I called a decent fish, which was, for example would be a bass over about four pounds, it went down to something like four hours fishing to catch a big fish like that. Of course you'd catch lots of little ones and that in between. So uh, the fishing improved something like eightfold by switching to lure fishing from bait fishing. And I suppose, in a way, that's why I stuck to it for a long time after that. Did a lot less bait fishing, a lot more lure fishing. If you're going to catch a lot more fish and, and decent fish, then that's what you do, isn't it? What about any disadvantages from lure fishing? Yeah, there are some, of course, and uh, and the sort of plugs we were using were, uh, were a problem. You had to fish near the surface because the water down here is very shallow. The maximum tide you get is about uh, six feet in Purbeck, where I live, and the water's very shallow. It's very snaggy where the bass live, so you get lots of weed and rocks and so on, and plugs with treble hooks on are almost tailor-made for getting hung up on the bottom. So uh, I suppose in recent years, the uh, development of things like poppers, which fish on the surface, and soft plastics, which you can fish weedless with the hook buried in it. I mean, the Americans have been doing this for centuries now. Both give advantages in snaggy conditions. People might think that lure fishing is an expensive way of doing things because nowadays you can pay 25 quid for a lure. Not that I ever would, I'm too tight for that. But lure fishing basically is cheap because once you get to learn what to do, you only need one lure and you probably never lose it if you're very careful. So, yeah, it's a good approach to fishing, yeah. I don't think it has many disadvantages, except that there's a tendency to catch smaller fish. Although, as I said early on, uh, my biggest ever bass was caught on a lure. It was about six inches from the edge of the sea when I caught it, and it took a plug. But if I wanted to catch just big bass, I wouldn't spend all my time lure fishing, that's for sure. There's been a revolution in recent years in lure fishing. We used to use and it was trial and error that had brought us to this 8-pound nylon monofilament as the standard line on the spinning rod. Now, it's not very strong, but we didn't lose anything. You used to catch, I mean, you'd lose a few lures and so on, but now you can use 20-pound braided line, which is even thinner than the 8-pound nylon, and obviously an awful lot stronger. Talk us through the types of geography best suited to lure fishing from the shore. Well... You can fish lures anywhere from the shore, basically. What the difference will be that if you're fishing over shallow, sandy beaches, you'll probably catch small bass. If you're fishing over rough ground with weeds, you'll catch bigger ones. And I used to have a sort of rule of thumb in my mind that the bigger the rocks were and the rougher the ground, the bigger the fish would be. And uh, there's some truth in that. Of course, using the 20-pound braid, I was talking about using 8-pound nylon and switching to 20-pound braid, it makes little difference to actually playing and landing fish because bass fight near the surface. You don't lose them to snags usually. I mean, there's very little problem from that point of view. Then you can play and land any fish as long as you've got enough line and plenty of water to play in. You can land anything on these things. But the braid makes a huge difference to losing lures and the feeling bites into hooking up fish because it's got no stretch. So you feel every little tap on the lure. When I first used it, I used to think that every time it tapped a rock, it was a fish. 
course, like anything else, you learn by experience the difference between a bite and a knock on the bottom. And for hooking fish, there's no stretch. And if you're using something like a, a surface popper or a soft bait that you're fishing absolutely at snail's pace, it's vital when the fish takes the lure, the line is tight and doesn't stretch. Well, if it stretches, it'll pull on the lure and then let go. But the braid means that that doesn't happen. The fish hook themselves. And I think for poppers, it's almost essential to use braid. I don't think we'd have been doing it with nylon. Certainly not in the effective way you do. What you generally do, you you don't actually know the fish is there. All that happens is the rod bends and the fish is on. So you're not striking anything like that when they take a, a surface lure. They're just hooking themselves against the tension on the braid. The sort of places that you would fish, I suppose, critical things with lure fishing are depth. So you use a lure that will fish at the right depth to catch the fish. Here it's very shallow, as I say. Most of the places I fish are very shallow, and it's a graveyard for anything that sinks. So you tend to use a lure that will float. Even if it fishes under the surface, it'll float up when you stop winding. And the second thing would be the speed of retrieve. So you want lures that you can retrieve at various speeds. And basically, the main factors in lure fishing that cause any problems are snags. And uh, if you can use lures that don't get snagged up, or don't get coated in loose weed when you're reeling in. I mean, a, a plug is almost designed as a sort of dredge for collecting bits of weed. So if you can find a lure that doesn't catch up bits of weed, it's a huge advantage. And that's where these modern sort of jellies and soft baits come in. You can fish them with a the hook buried in the lure and uh, basically you can fish anywhere. I go down at night. I don't worry what's in front of me sometimes if it's dark when I'm fishing. I just chuck it out there and slowly inch it back so at a snail's pace. And uh, it doesn't matter how snaggy it is or how much weed's in the water. It still doesn't pick it up and you catch fish doing that. Having said all that, I know that you got two good doubles very close in at your feet on freeline baits, where most people wouldn't even dream of fishing. Absolutely. I suppose I expected them, but other people probably wouldn't. And that was, again, it was an example of science coming home to roost, because when I wrote my first book in the late 70s, early 80s, I came across a piece of work by a chap called Carlisle, who was a scientist down at the Plymouth Marine Labs. And the mad person had spent a whole summer diving with a snorkel off Plymouth and watching bass on a particular reef. And what he found was that there was a bit, one particular big bass that he could recognise from the, uh, the sort of tatty fins and things. It came in onto this reef as soon as the water was deep enough for it to swim. And it left as soon as the tide started to ebb, even though there was still loads of water for it to live there. So it had a territory on this little reef, came in as soon as the water was deep enough to swim. And uh, I'd realised that this was really uh, a huge advantage to a fisherman. If you could put your bait on that reef and wait, the bass would come in and pick it up. In fact, this year, when the lure fishing had been a bit slow, me and several pals had, had been struggling to catch very many on lures. And I thought I'd go back and try bait fishing, which I've done a lot of over the years. And I was lobbing out either a sort of uh, mackerel head and shoulders or a whole fillet of mackerel at no more than about two yards into something like a foot of water at low tide. And as the tide began to creep in, 
I never actually saw fish come and take the bait, but it was gin clear and flat calm very often, and uh, there can't have been more than inches of water over the backs of these fish, and they were coming in and taking the bait, and what they do is buzz off with it, and then, uh, in fact nowadays I use circle hooks as opposed to sort of traditional J-hooks, and all you do is wait until the fish has gone a fair way, flick the bail arm over, and you don't strike, and the circle hook hooks them in the edge of the jaw nine times out of ten. So you can, if you want to let them go again, you can do. There's no problem about releasing the fish after you've caught them. And I found that basically, as I would have expected, the big baits fished on the bottom catch bigger fish than you do on lures. It's as simple as that. Also, I've used live bait with these circle hooks, and you catch bigger fish if you use live baits than you do on lures as well. I've now caught many hundreds of bass, none above about four pounds, and often about two pounds, on plugs and soft plastics. Using live bait, I haven't had one under five pounds, and I've had them up to eleven and a half. Similarly with the, the dead baits, I, this year I've fished perhaps... 20 times, I suppose an average session for me doing that is about an hour, an hour and a half. I've fished 20 times, I've had, I think, 13 bites, I've missed three, and I've had 10 fish between 5 and 12 and a half pounds, including two 12 pounders. So, very, very productive on baits. But you've got to have the confidence to sit there with a bait a couple of yards out in front of you, waiting for these fish to come and take it. You've also done a lot of pioneering work on fly fishing for bass and mullet. Yeah, well, when we first fished for bass with lures, we used to see vast numbers of mullet in the same places. The two species often associate. In fact, one of my pals who goes down to Portugal said that he's actually watched bass hiding in shoals of mullet. So, in other words, they look so much alike that the little fish are not bothered about a mullet, but the bass can pretend to be... Uh, part of a mullet shawl and nip out and get themselves a meal by doing that. Anyway, in Dorset we used to see huge shoals of mullet, often thousands of fish feeding at the surface when we were bass fishing. And these mullet feed on the maggots of a fly called Celopa, which is a seaweed fly. Seaweed flies are interesting things because they uh, lay their eggs in rack cast upon the shore, what I call middens, rack middens. Since every fortnight you get bigger tides, spring tides, it's only once a fortnight for three or four days that these maggots get washed into the sea and the mullet come and skim them off the surface. And we used to walk back often if we'd had a poor evening's bass fishing and say, blimey, if only we could find a way of catching the mullet. You know, the sport would be fantastic because they're big fish and they look powerful fish. And over the years we gradually developed a way of catching them on a the fly, fishing a fly on the surface. And uh, fly tackle is simply a means of casting a weightless lure to a fish. I'm not one of these people who believes it's more artistic or cleverer than any other sort of fishing. I mean, as, as you'll have gathered, I'm just as keen on sitting there with a lump of bait out as I am spinning a lure or casting a fly. So the fly tackle, as I say, is simply a means of casting a weightless lure. And it was fairly obvious, if I'd thought about it at the time, that if you wanted to catch a fish that was feeding on insect larvae drifting on the surface you would use a fly I mean trout fishing we've been doing it for centuries haven't they dry fly fishing with an insect on the surface and so we developed maggot flies which look like these little maggots that drift out the seaweed and 
gradually developed a method of catching mullet on artificial flies and I've now caught thousands but what we found was that the mullet are a bit more sophisticated than trout because they can tell the difference pretty effectively between an artificial and a real maggot so what you've got to do is put on an artificial floating fly and then add a maggot or two to the bend of the hook and you'll increase the number of bites tenfold if you do that I've doubled at fly fishing myself occasionally from the shore, but always seem to struggle when casting weighty lures, especially if there's any sort of an onshore breeze. Ah, yeah, but <laughs> that's not really not the thing to do, I think. I think you, you want to fish, you want to try and avoid it. If it's like that, the thing to do is spin or use bait. Yeah, I wouldn't do it if, it was, if the conditions were really difficult. Now, just a little bit about fly fishing. You tend to catch smaller fish on the fly gear because you're using smaller lures. You could use huge lures, of course, and do it, but it becomes hard work then. It's a bit like fly fishing for pike. You do it for your own amusement, not because it's a better way of catching a pike. You'd be better with a spinning gear and a big lure than a fly because it's effectively the same thing, and it's much easier to fish on a spinning rod. So you tend to catch smaller fish on the fly gear. For virtually all my fly fishing, I use an eight-weight trout rod, weight-forward floating line, and a six-pound nylon cast. Just a bit of straight six-pound nylon, perhaps eight feet long. And I tie the lure on the end. I tend to use small lures. So, as I said, originally we were using maggot flies. Now they're on a size between a 14 and a size 10 hook, depending on exactly what we're doing. We also use an Idatia fly, which is an imitation of a small marine woodlouse. There's another situation where you get vast numbers of them and the fish eat them. Or, I think what you're talking about, which is using a streamer uh, or something like that. Now, the best lure I've found for doing that sort of fishing is a little plastic eel, a little delta eel, perhaps about two inches long. And you can fish that on a floating line and so on. And what you'll find is that it doesn't matter, you can catch fish any time of day, but dawn and dusk are the best times to do it. And you'll usually find that there's a lot less wind and a lot less problems of that type at that time of day. Now, just to give you an example, a normal productive session for me, a good, it'd be a good morning, I might catch 40 fish in an hour and a half, and there'd be a mix of bass, mackerel, pollock, garfish, scad, so I would get all those species, perhaps, in an hour and a half fishing with a fly. I mean, I'm not exaggerating, that's actually a, a fact. And uh, you can catch other things like rats and flounders occasionally, but if you're going to catch something like mullet, that's much more specialised. You wouldn't catch as many in a short time. I mean, I, there's a picture in my first book of my pal Terry Gledhill with five five-pound mullet that he had on the fly one evening. That's still an exceptional catch. But we catch quite a lot of big ones. The best mullet I've had was well over eight pounds on the fly. If you hook a five pounder, you'll often spend between five and ten minutes playing and landing this thing on, on a six pound cast. And it'll take the fly line and 20 or 30 yards of backing in its runs with this, this fish. So it's definitely worth doing. But if you go at dawn, if you get up before it gets light and get down there and fish, with a small streamer fly, so it doesn't have to be anything big or difficult to cast, and just fish it fairly near the surface, you will find that for a short time, the fish will often go 
berserk. Now, they don't always do it. You can be in the wrong place. But as I say, 40 fish an hour and a half would be a good morning, but not out of the question for me. And you'd normally catch quite a lot of fish doing that. You might catch more if you were spinning, of course, but the fish tend to be not very big if you're catching them on uh, on flies. So it's it's more fun doing it that way, really. Now, much as you say that you're not out there banging the conservation drum at every opportunity, being interested in bass, or for that matter any species of saltwater fish, like the rest of us, you will have views on the subject, which with your trained scientific eye are probably more finger on the pulse than most. So what are your thoughts there? I think it's fairly grim, to be honest, at the moment. Uh, as you say, it's not my thing, really, but I'm not a great sort of... Uh, conservation-minded person. I put a lot of my fish back that I catch. I don't sort of do a lot in terms of uh, active sort of conservation, but I'm a member of Bass, for example, the sort of Bass Angler Sport Fishing Society, and if they want somebody writing to MPs, anything like that, I do it. I think it's quite important that you should do that sort of thing. There's no question that fishing deteriorated over the years. I suppose the best and most obvious example of that has been the two world wars, sadly, because during the periods in the world wars when fishing didn't come to a standstill, but commercial fishing was vastly reduced, the size and abundance of lots of fish increased dramatically. It's an example of what the commercial fishing is doing to these things. So there's no doubt about it that it has a a vast impact on the abundance. What anglers need, of course, is a variety of fish of different sizes. They don't want to be, well, most of them, don't want to be catching nothing but sort of pound and a half fish all the time uh, if it's bass they're after. They'd like a range of sizes. You don't mind catching a lot of little ones, but it's quite good to think that at least you have a chance of something that weighs 15 or 20 pounds, you know. You don't want them all to be mopped up and wiped out, do you? No, but population fluctuations are not just a product of overfishing. Rising sea temperatures, changing weather patterns and a general northerly shift are also playing the part. Yeah, no question of that. I mean, things have shifted and we've got, we're catching a lot more things like triggerfish and smoothhounds and things. Of course, methods have something to do with it. It's always difficult to separate the changes in tactics. I mean, things like the use of braided lines, or the use of different types of lures, or this LRF thing that people are doing now, they're all changes in tactics. So you've also got to separate the changes in fish communities and populations from the changes in angling activity, and that's not always that easy to do. So I think there are definitely changes. Fish are moving northwards, things which tended to live only in the south and southwest of this country, off the coast here, are now being caught up in, in Scotland. But it's possible some of them were always there and just nobody bothered fishing for them, you know, and that the methods now are being applied more widely. So it's not quite such a simple story as it might seem. What do you make of the Sea Angle in 2012 survey and the fact that despite its smaller size and economic value, the commercial lobby has a far bigger voice in the recreational sector? Well, they're very well organised, aren't they? And they speak with one voice, which anglers, almost by definition, 
if there are a thousand of them, you'll get a thousand different opinions on things. And they're not very good. You know, oh, well, we don't want a license. We don't want restrictions on our catches. We don't want this, that, the other. You'll always find people who do that. And they're just very rarely of one voice. I think on several occasions, the angling lobby has tried to get together with, a, I think it was a National Anglers Council and uh, whatever the angling trust nowadays and things like that. But the actual membership of these things and the organisation uh, of anglers as a body is almost non-existent whereas commercial men all speak with one voice what they want is (laughs) more fish basically to sell that's what it boils down to so i I think it's it's just a fact of life really we'll never be in a position to argue with them until somehow people are more sensible and 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 try and, and do things in the same way A good example of us getting the dirty end of a stick yet again is the EU proposal for a one fish per day bag limit on anglers while ignoring the damage done by per trawlers out over the winter spawning grounds. Yeah, well, it's nonsense, isn't it? But what they're calling anglers are often people who go out in a charter boat and catch everything and what they don't take home themselves, a skipper keeps, basically, so they call that angling. But it's not... Most members of Bass, for example, who I would think... If you're a keen bass angler, you probably have joined that organisation. doesn't have that many members. I don't know what it is, in the 500 or something like that nowadays. Uh, most of them would put back the majority of what they catch. I mean, I have no objection to eating something I catch. I think it's the only real rationale for fishing is to actually eat what you catch. That doesn't mean you should eat everything. And when you're putting things back, you could regard it as being practice for catching them. So making yourself actually more skillful. Angling does have the huge advantage, of course, that you can put things back alive, whereas if it's been caught in a net, it's probably had it. You'll see it nowadays, won't you, in uh, in Sainsbury's or in uh, Marks and Spencer's, and it'll say line caught. And the best way of line catching things is for an angler to do it, because he doesn't set a line and leave the things dead hanging on the line. He actually catches the fish, it's still alive and well. If he's using sensible methods it's easy to release it and let it go again if he wants to so if it's too small or the wrong species he can do that but commercials can't do that without getting party political to one extent as being a member of the eu which is a federation of countries make implementing good sound fisheries policy difficult Unlike, say, the USA, which as a single country has been able to effectively turn around the quality of its territorial fishing. Well, it makes a difference, doesn't it, these things? I mean, one, <laughs> I suppose one, one thing you could say is that we're not really part of the European Federation even. When you get a big organisation like that, inevitably you've got a lot of different voices. It's a bit like the anglers in a way. So they all have different viewpoints on it and it's quite difficult to do. The USA, they do have a sort of federal thing where they can have more or less universal laws as well a lot more difficult in Europe still I mean it's still in its infancy isn't it maybe in 100 years time or 200 years time it'll be sufficiently coordinated to pass laws that everybody agrees with and and sticks to but uh, doesn't seem to be like that at the moment in your opinion then what needs to be done and by whom Well, I think commercial fishing has to be restricted. I mean, the scientists are currently saying they want an 80% reduction in bass catches, I think. And I think that would make sense, really, that they should do that. And then, basically, everybody's got to stick to it, and you've got to see what happens and see whether it actually 
does improve things. I mean, you're probably aware of, it's a, going back a long way, but the cod fishing off the Newfoundland banks, where the catches used to be phenomenal. I mean, they used to say you couldn't actually lower a lead down at the bottom without it banging on the backs of the fish, I think. And they caught these fish in thousands of tonnes. And the fishery collapsed because of overfishing, and it's never recovered. So we don't know what's going to happen when you do these things. That's the trouble. People assume that they'll uh, recover and so on, but it's possible they won't, that things will never come back. So really the commercials cut the noses off to spite the faces, I think, uh, from that point of view. It's in their interest to have decent population of fish to fish for. You'll always find somebody who makes a good catch and says, oh, there's still plenty of fish out there. But you've got to look at it in a scientific way. It's a bit like my fishing, isn't it? Got to look at it in a scientific way to be actually sure that that's the case. And uh, they'd rather not believe the scientists if it hits their pockets. And that's reasonable. It's their livelihood, isn't it? Can we also take a look at Operation Sea Angler? Yeah. As I said, I'd made a couple of attempts at books before that and failed dismally. They were so boring it wasn't true, the things I'd written. Science and common sense are one and the same thing in my mind. So I I think that trying to combine the two in a book was always going to be my approach to it. And uh, what I do, I suppose, is try to use evidence of things, which can be difficult for anglers. It's, It's hard for them to separate hearsay and plausible myth, which a lot of journalists are extremely good at, from facts, and I've never found it easy to convince people about things. I mean, you know, you go look round the coast and see how many sea anglers you find who will flick an unweighted bait out two yards. Not very many, probably me, and perhaps one or two of my mates who do the same sort of thing, and that's it out of the million or so sea anglers, whatever it is they say that there are nowadays. Similarly, I think the number of people who will get up before it gets light and fish at snail's pace with a soft plastic is pretty minimal. There are not many, too many people who do it. And it's only when they realise that other people are catching a lot of fish that, that they start. It takes a long time for these things to sink in. And uh, the idea of the book originally, it was published in 1983, was to get this sort of thinking over to anglers. And it did to a small number, I think, a small proportion. I mean, you also, when you write a book, you also have the vision in your mind of it selling. I used to think, well, if it sells only to 10% of sea anglers, that's 100,000 sales. But if you got that, it'd be a miracle. I suppose, mm, scientific approach, then time and place are 90% of the struggle for success in fishing. So if you've got to be in the right place and the right time, and if you achieve what you intend to do, then you're obviously thinking along the right lines, aren't you? Finally, you've got a son living over in Brazil and another one in Australia, plus you like to holiday over in Tobago. Some pretty amazing angling potentials there. But to what extent have you explored or utilised these? Well, it takes a long time. I tell people if they're going abroad, I mean, I get a lot of people write to me and say, I'm going to so-and-so, you know how should I approach it, sort of thing. And I say, well, not to be impatient, because it's taken me, going to Tobago, I've now been probably 15 times, and it's taken me all that time. I still don't know anything like all of it. So it takes time, that's the first thing. 
Australia I've only been a couple of times I went for my son's wedding and needless to say the amount of opportunities for fishing are fairly limited when you're at somebody's wedding like that but uh, I hardly know it I have a pal in New Zealand who I visited when I was over there because it's a long way to go without seeing somebody who you know and we write to each other every week he has a similar approach to me it's different as you would expect another angler we write to each other every week about fishing my son now lived in brazil for six or seven years and he's just starting to get the hang of the fishing he lives only a hundred yards from the beach the water's warm so you don't need to even wear waders or anything like that there's a huge diversity of fish there i mean absolutely enormous you can go if you put a bait out it wouldn't be unusual to catch 20 different sorts of fish in in a session sort of thing most of them will be tiny so there are vast numbers of small fish last time i went over there which was last year we had snuck to over 20 pounds from the shore that's the first time really that he's managed to get anything really worthwhile off the shore he's had one or two good ones from his kayak that he goes from but it's a slow process learning i mean the one i caught the 22 pounder i caught took on my bass gear which is what i use and one of my homemade soft plastics with a weedless hook tobago i say i've been more than a dozen times fishing there and i've had tarpon up to about 80 pounds again on the bass gear from the shore big snook barracuda houndfish bonefish jacks which are my favorites and lots of smaller species i I love catching jacks the only thing i would say is that you've always got to have a wire trace on as far as i'm concerned taught me a lot about that as well because i tend to use them over here now all the time when i'm fishing my local rivers i've got to use wire even if i'm trying to catch chub or perch on a lure because the odds are it'll be taken by a pike and they'll nick the lure off the line if you don't have wire on the end doesn't seem to put fish off as far as i can see so, yeah, in, in Tobago we catch lots of fish, lots of big fish now. I've got a pretty fair idea how to tackle it. It's the same as here, in a way. The fish bite much better at dawn and dusk. But dawn and dusk are much shorter periods of time in the tropics than they are in temperate climates. So you only get 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> when, when the hot time sort of thing. And if you're not there those 20 minutes, you might as well not have bothered fishing. And as I say, I use the bass gear, so it's 20 or 30 pound braid, a short wire trace, and a lure, or a live bait, or a dead bait. But mostly spinning, because that's convenient when you go on holiday. You don't have to faff about getting baits and things. So I take my box of lures, which is more than I should carry usually, but not such a big variety as many people would have, and uh, do a lot of spinning. You might think I'd find it tame, I suppose, catching bass and mullet when I get back home again, but uh, I think I'm a born angler, and it's just natural to me. Sometimes it takes a day or so to think about going fishing when I get back, after I've been hauling out big fish from the shore over there, and I might go here and think about catching a sort of half-pound brass. It's not quite the same, but, uh, but I'll soon get back into it again. As ever, everything is relative. As regards a scientific approach, the evidence which lay people as well as scientists always crave in bucket laws to convince them is there aplenty. 
if potentially more and bigger bass, or vast numbers of hard-fighting and specimen mullet don't turn the balance of evidence, then nothing will. So a very big thank you for making the case once again for us all here.